0: And we now join uh, on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television our conversation with Ian Bremmer of Eurasia Group, his top risks for 2018. And we're honored to have with us in this hour the 76th uh, Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, someone you all know is service with, uh, President Obama. Yes. A Massachusetts Democrat. Jacob Blue joins us this morning. Uh, Jack Liu as well. Ian Bremmer, I want you to give the first question to Jack Liu. There's too much to talk about now. What is, how would you frame the nation's challenges, our risks this year as you speak to Jack Liu?
1: Well, we were talking a little bit before the show started about the chaos, uh, about how much it is the in, it takes a very long time to make things work. It takes a much shorter time to break them. I know Jack's very worried about, you know, as someone who was secretary mm-hmm. of treasury and, and spent so much time working so hard, right? To, to and, and finding that Washington is sclerotic and you can't make policies happen. You can't move no, the needle for people. That. Right, but if you now have a geopolitical order where, the principal actors are trying to break it. The Russians want to break the geopolitical order. The Chinese want a new geopolitical order that goes towards them. The United States is uninterested in providing support for the old geopolitical order. How much does that chaos, worry yeah. jack
0: i mean i want to go back to something calm john farrow like brexit is sort of a calmer discussion here <laughs> but mr secretary I you want to asked go back. me to
2: ask you I, I want to set it up for, for you no I please go ahead ask go ahead please and then you jump in I excuse if, me if you look at the risks facing the world and and i read you know the eurasia report i i think it identifies many of the of the key risks the thing that underlies so much of it is chaos um, it's the unpredictability of key leaders. It's the lack of a North Star with the United States stepping back in so many ways. And it's this kind of destructive policy without anything constructive to take its place. And that's true on issue after issue here in the United States. I, I think that you, know, you look at markets over the last year, the calmness of markets, the enthusiasm of markets mm-hmm. almost suggests that there's been a decision to look beyond all of this chaos and uncertainty because what can we do about it? But then when the moment comes when something happens that is a a surprise, that shouldn't be a surprise, I worry about binary kind of changes.
0: I want to cut to the January chase. Greg Vellier's report this morning was shocking of how compressed this month is in Washington. I want to go back to the beginning of your career with Joe Moakley of Massachusetts, who was the most basic of politicians from another time. What does your Democratic Party need to do to provide leadership within this chaos. What do you wish from Mr. Schumer, from Ms. Pelosi and others?
2: Look, fundamentally, Democrats are not in charge right now, so I don't think it's fair or or, uh, realistic to look to Democrats to lead the way out of this. You have an administration that chose to make policy in a very, very one-party way, uh, did not include Democrats in any of the conversation. Now they can't probably rally their own troops to do the basic business of running the government, making sure we don't default on the debt, making sure children don't get thrown off of health insurance, all kinds of things they're going to be looking to Democrats to help. I think the challenge is going to be to truly work together, and truly working together doesn't mean coming with a fait accompli and saying we need your vote. Truly working together means going back and doing things that you wouldn't have otherwise done to reach a consensus around some kind of a reasonable yeah. compromise. Reasonable compromise is the basis for working together. We're not seeing any of that coming out of the White House.
3: Secretary Lou, you've called this legislation dangerous, this tax bill. Why is this dangerous?
2: Look, I think what, if you look at the tax bill, um, what it does is almost the exact opposite of what anxious and angry voters were calling for in an election just a year ago. You have people who are worried about where do they fit in an economy where technology and trade and globalization seem to be changing all the rules that they grew up with. And what we need is we need training, we need education, we need infrastructure, we need to invest in the kind of workforce of the future that gives people the confidence they have a place in it. What we've seen is a tax cut that spends money we don't have to have very concentrated benefits for global corporations and the top 1% and it's leaving us broke so that we cannot deal with these fundamental problems, so we're farther behind in actually making progress. And I fear that the next shoe to drop is going to be an attack on the most vulnerable in our society. How are we going to pay for the deficit caused by the tax cut? You're going to see proposals to cut health insurance from poor people, to take you know basic food support away from poor people, to attack Medicare and Social Security. One could not have made up a more cynical Strategy.
1: And the people are going to reject things that otherwise are good when they don't work for them. So, you know, free trade, good thing for the world, for global growth, but people reject it if they think it doesn't work for them. Technology, obviously a good thing, but they reject it when they see the government doesn't work for them. And what Jack is saying now, is that on the back of this extraordinary tax bill, yeah. if you're gonna see cuts for the average people, their response is gonna be vastly greater rejectionism of the mm-hmm. establishment That's and right. political polarization. And the Democrats and the Republicans are both gonna to have to deal these with issues. These
3: issues, Secretary Lou, did not mm-hmm. arrive overnight with the election of President Donald Trump. They've existed for a long, long time. The United States has been spending money it hasn't had for a long, long time. I guess my question is, why is this any different to what we've seen before? Well,
2: first of all, you know, I've been in office in several different periods, and uh, I've spent three years running the Office of Management and Budget in the Clinton administration. We ran a surplus. We fixed a problem. Uh, when I came into the Office of Management and Budget in the Obama administration, we went from a deficit of almost 10% of GDP to 3% of GDP. We've now consciously, intentionally, as a government, made a decision to right. add substantial amounts of debt at a time when the economy doesn't need fiscal stimulus. What it needs is targeted investment in the things that people need for a better future. You know, the, 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 the risk uh, of this tax bill is both a further disenchantment with institutions, and if you look at what and the report gets to this, the kind of rejection of institutions. Right. Um, how are people going to respect institutions more when they realize what this tax problem uh, is? I want to set them. this
0: debate with, and if you're just joining us now on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television, Jack Lou and Ian Bremer. Let me set it up in terms of Boston, where it's going to be 13 below zero in Brockton, uh, I think, on Saturday. Ian Bremmer, you grew up tough in Chelsea, and when you're living fat and large in Weston or Wellesley Hills, you know where Chelsea is. How would your mother do it today in this environment in Chelsea? Could you have gotten to Tulane? In this milieu today
1: i didn't uh, let's be clear i didn't grow up tough i grew up getting my ass kicked uh in chelsea it's slightly different if you look at me you understand why uh, but i'm good for radio uh i i think that if today my mother would have voted for trump or she would have maybe voted for bernie sanders there's absolutely no way she would have voted for a mainstream democrat or republican mm-hmm. my brother voted for trump um, there, there ain't nobody else from my neighborhood that got out of the Chelsea projects that you know is now talking on Bloomberg or Global, and I think that it's precisely that environment, environments like it all over the country that are okay. saying this isn't working.
0: Then what does your party need to do to gain dominance in the Chelsea's of Wisconsin or Minnesota where you lost the
2: election? Look, that, that is a good question. Um, what you're talking about used to be the base of the Democratic Party. Yes. Um, and uh, we need to find a way to communicate with people talking about the things that I'm talking about. And I think Ian's right. You can't win by saying trade is the whole problem, When that's not the whole problem, you have to talk to people respectfully and explain to them what it is you're going to do so that they can have a piece of the economic pie going forward. You know, look, we have a lot of problems that if we didn't have dysfunctional government, we could have made more progress on over Mm -hmm. the last couple of decades. I mean, it's not as if any of the things that I'm saying we need to do are either rocket science or particularly partisan ideas. We've had a government that's been incapable of working together. And Uh, that dysfunction is really a problem. It attacks the core of our democracy. We look
0: at the top risks of 2018 with Dr. Bremer and we're honored to have with us the 76th uh, Secretary of the Treasury Department of the United States, of course, Jack uh, Lew with us. Uh, Jack, I want to talk about 86. You were with Speaker Uh, uh, Tip O'Neill at the time as we crafted bipartisan legislation. We're nowhere near that now. Paul Krugman in my chart of the year in the New York Times talks about how different it is now because we're a more open economy subject to the whims of all that money coming in from abroad. Can this tax reform or tax cuts, whatever you want to call it, can it work in a modern international fiscal system and financial system?
2: Well, there's almost no way to compare 1986 to what happened at the end of 2017. Um, they're just they're just so different. First of all, the economy is different. Um, you know, we're, we're right now at a period where we're nine years into a recovery, and we don't need fiscal stimulus. And instead of paying for the tax bill, we're creating huge deficits. So that means that whatever macroeconomic benefit we get out of a little bit of stimulus, it will probably speed the pace of monetary policy change and take away the benefit over time. I think if you look at the content of the bill, in 1986, the basic rule was do no harm. Don't make the system any less progressive. And if there's going to be a change, make it more progressive. This bill went the other way. It makes the system more regressive. I think if you look even at the things that are within this bill, uh, the cynicism is so in contrast to the way it's being described. You know, the, the, the corporate rate cuts do very little, if anything, to encourage investment. Mm-hmm. The rapid uh, depreciation, the expensing of investment, expires after four or five years. So the provision that they put in for business that actually could lead to some more investment is temporary, which means if it's extended, the bill is even more expensive. The tax cuts for individual fade away over time. This is its a ticking time bomb in terms of the debt because it costs one and a half to two trillion dollars on its face. But if the provisions that could potentially do some things to help middle class people or stimulate investment are extended, the cost goes way up. You cannot run a fiscal policy by spending trillions of dollars you don't have at a time when the economy is doing well. That's when you need to do some fiscal repair, not harm.
3: Ian, when you speak to companies on a daily basis like you do here in the United States, are they worried about the tax bill, or are they celebrating it? Because I sense they're probably quite pleased well, with what they're seeing. They are. They like the markets, they like the
1: global economy, they like the tax bill. They may not like Trump personally, but I would say that on balance, they're reasonably happy with most of what the Trump administration is doing domestically. They're not happy with what Trump's doing internationally. They're not happy about the potential protectionism and trade issues. They're not happy with the likelihood that the United States is going to get in bigger fights uh, internationally. And they also want a consistent message, right? So the idea that they can, they they kind of know what they can count on. They love access. Yeah. So I mean, you know, there was a lot of complaints in the early days of the Obama administration. The CEOs felt like they gave a lot of money and they weren't getting a lot of the face time, the pay for play that is traditional in the American system. They, they certainly feel like they're getting a bunch of that with this White House. But I I do think that the CEOs are starting to get unnerved about a global order that is not as likely to benefit western multinational corporations. And that's not something they necessarily blame Trump for. In fact, To the extent that in 2018 we see that Trump is out there pushing much harder on China, I don't think it'll work well because if you do that you want to be doing it with your allies, not by yourself. But the average American corporate has been kind of itching for a tougher line policy against the Chinese for a while because they all feel like it's becoming harder and harder for them to compete in the Chinese marketplace against Chinese state-supported corporations.
3: At the heart of your piece today is this vacuum that's being left by the United States, the reluctant hegemon and the way that China would like to fill it. For you, Secretary Liu, the message that Ian just spouts out, that corporate America, actually, this is what they've wanted for a long time. They've wanted a harder line, a tougher line on the Chinese and the barriers to entry that they see in Chinese markets. Is this a good approach, if this is what corporate America ultimately wants on the international stage, in China more specifically?
2: First, corporate America has had a a kind of um, division within itself about how to deal with this issue. We used to beg companies to confront the Chinese government directly so that we weren't just making the case on their behalf, but they'd be there validating it. They wouldn't do it because they were afraid if they went to the Chinese government and said, we're being blocked by the things you're doing, that there would be actions taken against them, that would be punitive. So it makes it harder for the government to make your case if you won't make it for yourself. That was a, mm-hmm. a constant challenge. Um, I think this vacuum is something that corporate America ought to be worried about. And frankly, all of us who care deeply about liberal right. democracy and free market capitalism ought to care about. It. The two go together. If you start to see free, you know, the, 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 the pillars of li- liberal democracy start to erode, The world is not a better place for free market uh, economics. And that's a risk. It's a risk right now, because if we create a vacuum, others are stepping in. I actually don't blame China for seeing an opportunity. I think that China's aggressive use of the opportunity will probably limit its success, because it scares some of its neighbors, like in Australia, which right now is torn between an economic pull to China and a political pull to stay with a a, a 100-plus-year-old alliance. The tragedy is that friends have to go through that calculation. That shouldn't even be. It shouldn't be right. that a country like Australia has to think about, is the United States my stable friend? That's the scary part. The Jack Australians Luz.
1: just did yeah. like a big national security review precisely on right. this issue. They never thought they were going to do
2: it. Never.
0: Jack Lew, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward thank to speaking again. to you through the year. He's a former Secretary of Treasury of the United States.
3: We're looking, of course, at talking to Dominic Barton. He is the global managing partner of McKinsey, and he leads the firm's focus not just on the uh, the Montreal maple Leafs. Is that Can like ca- Can- Stop Can- it. Canadian? <laughs> I'm winding you up. Come on, guys. He leads the firm's focus on the future of capitalism. We're joined, of course, by Dom as we sit here at the Eurasia headquarters on Fifth Avenue. And, Dom, I want to pick out one of the themes from Eurasia Group's report, and it's Pre- Protectionism 2.0. What does protectionism 2.0 mean to you, Dom? Well, I think uh, the, that
4: risk that they've pointed out is a very key one for us to be thinking about this year. Uh, and I think about NAFTA, what's going to happen with NAFTA in March, whether you know, we get a, a revised NAFTA, I'm not sure. We've got Brexit uh, that's, uh, that's sort of trundling along. Um, these, the problem with trade deals is when they go the, the wrong way, it's a race to the bottom. Uh, everyone then sort of looks inward and that's the thing that, that that worries me the most um so it's nafta is the big factor on the horizon in the, in the next 3 months but the other f- things that worry me are the non tariff trade barriers which which ian bremner and the others uh, yeah. point out in the report this is the localization requirements the uh, labeling that's put in place these these non tariff barriers which make it more difficult uh, to be able to have global supply chains and have trade.
3: Dom, last year, it, the investor community was consumed by these kind of conversations at the beginning of this year. At the beginning of the year, they did not get paid to worry about them. In fact, they got paid not to worry about them with the performance of emerging markets, etc. Do you worry that as we come into 2018, people are conditioned to ignore these risks because focusing too much on them last year was not a rewarding exercise at all. As we come into 2018, is that a risk?
4: Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I, I do think that, as, as Jack Lew was saying earlier on a program, that you know, the markets or businesses have to sort of just keep forging ahead despite sort of chaos, if you will. You have to keep forging ahead. The right. problem is, if if one of the underlying assumptions doesn't work, then you can have a a big problem. It's it's the binary notion. It's one or zero. Mm-hmm. It's not a smooth probability curve, and that's the part. I don't know what else you can do. I think you have to keep just forging ahead. You have to keep driving it, but you you better also have a resiliency plan in place to say, if uh, this if if trade is actually going to be stopped in some particular way or brought backwards. Right. How am I prepared to deal with that?
0: Yeah, and we can tell with the accent that you're decidedly Canadian, I believe, <laughs> of a British Columbian persuasion. Uh, but, Dom, but, um, I, I look at where we are, and we were mentioning earlier leadership like in ice hockey and that, and we can take the Trudeaus. There was Trudeau Sr., and you and I remember the emotion and the day-to-day debacle of yeah. that. Maybe the calmness that Trudeau the Younger has brought to Canada, and it comes down to people. What does business want from President Trump? I think,
4: you know, what what I think business leadership looks for is stability, a set of policies that are going to actually help deal with issues. It's uh, something, Tom, you've you've talked about before, adult conversations, which I really like The phrase. Just here's what's happening. Here's how we're going to try and deal with this. And let's be honest about the real challenges that are there, because there's a lot of them. Um, And that's what business is you know what 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 frightens i think business if i might say that is is chaos uncertainty things that we that were not expected i think telling the truth about what's going on what are the things we need to be prepared for what are the downsides yeah. what, we need more of that do you believe
0: and and i'm saying this from your academics as a Rhodes scholar, and I'm also saying this from all the research and business dealings, the transactions, the daily communication of McKinsey Group, do you believe in trickle down economics?
4: Oh, that's a deep. That's a very deep. A deep question. I mean, no, we do I, that when the temperature goes below twenty. Big yeah, bigger twenty. I have do, <laughs> that's a, I have to get some more coffee here on that. But but I, you know, I um, I have to I. I think there's some elements of trickle down but it you, there is nowhere near enough trickle down to deal with an issue and I, one thing I just want to put on the table over Please. the last 30 years the top 0.1% right. of US households have increased their wealth by 50% 0.1% increased by 50% that means the top 0.1% of households have more wealth than the bottom 90%. That in a time of of that time of change when you get that amount of inequality yeah. that's going on trickle-down isn't it's, happening.
0: John, it, it, is trickle-down part of the debate, the discourse in the United Kingdom? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's within it's part the discussion. Of, it's part
3: of the political debate worldwide, I think, at this point, the economic disparity between the haves and the haves-nots. Uh, you focus on the future of capitalism. Mm-hmm. What is the future of capitalism when the focus increasingly is on wealth inequalities? On Well, capitalism is going to have to
4: morph because we know in from history when the system revolts against it it's a pretty ugly demise right and, and pitchforks and I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen in 2018 but the trends of increased inequality are are there and technology which I'm a huge fan of is actually a driver of that you get increasing returns to scale right a very few number of people can create massive amounts of wealth you get this as I said the the, the what technology does is you know you've got you can have a consumer base of over 2.7 billion people in your in your consumer base what we have to start thinking about is our traditional institutions that we have to help people have the chance to enter that system because capitalism's never been equal I, I don't apologize for inequality what I apologize for is inequality of opportunity is the conveyor belt there for people to have the chance to be able to, participate should they desire, to build the skills to do it. And that's what's happening with the world moving faster uh, and faster with with increasing returns to technology. You're going to see increasing tension on that, which is going to lead to more populism and, uh, and to what I would call more chaotic type government. As you
3: look at the political debate right now, though, do you see a debate around the equality of opportunity or the equality of outcomes? Because right now I sense is a debate almost exclusively around the equality of outcomes. People not happy about the outcome, the place they are, not so much about opportunity. Yeah, I,
4: I agree with you. I do think more of the focus is on I have this, they have that. Right. What's going on? The the challenge I think is we, you know, it's going to get worse. And I think what we have to start looking at is what are the ways that we can ensure that everyone has the chance to do it. Right. What, one book I read over the Christmas break, *Jane'sville*. It's called, I had to take sort of antidepressants yeah. after every chapter. It's a, just a very sad what can, story. Okay, you're
0: yeah. an, you are the elite of the elites at McKinsey Group. I love going to your soiree in Davos. It is every stereotype. What can people like McKinsey and company and the good people, the smart people that have worked their butt off for Don Barton to shake their hand and say, welcome to McKinsey. What are you going to do about Janesville? What are you going to do about opioids? What are you going to do about the headaches Senator Portman of Ohio has?
4: That's a really good push, Tom, because I think one of the worries I have is people like me sipping champagne, talking talking about Janesville and the world's problems, or why don't I write an op-ed and that's my contribution. That's just not good enough. And I think what it means is that in your organization, so in McKinsey, for example, we have a very significant effort called Generation, which is trying to help unemployed youth get jobs and get it quickly in between three to seven weeks and this isn't an advertisement i'm just saying it's something we do we don't talk about it a lot it's what we have to do this and part of it is because we are also at the thin edge of the wedge or the tip of the spear on productivity when companies are restructuring we're often right. there so where are those workers going to go so we have a very significant effort on reskilling how do we help companies and organizations to reskill well, workers who are who are who are losing their jobs to be able to get new jobs? What are we individually doing to make a difference in the communities that we live in?
0: Don Barton with us, who's with McKinsey, and it is a McKinsey that does consulting to companies, linking strategic and tactical theory, but also they have carved out through good work over the last decade, the McKinsey Global Institute, which is uh, just first-rate research. I can't convey enough the printed the value of the printed edition of their different 40 and 60 page essays. Which is the one you're most proud about coming out this year? What are we going to look for I, from MGI?
4: I think uh, two. One is the is reskilling. The whole issue about how we're going to prepare the workforce, the uh, in around the world, but also right. in the U.S. and other, other developed economies to prepare for the technology disruption that we're, we're in the midst of that's going to be. A, well, a let's
0: go right one. there right yeah. now. We've got an America of elites. We know who they are. We thank you for listening to Bloomberg surveillance. We've got another group striving. They're part of the economy. They're doing the economy. And then as Jeff Sachs of Columbia says, there's this large body of people that have just been left aside and they're really not part of the American discourse anymore. Is that a, government system that jumpstarts them? Is it a business responsibility?
4: I think it's all of our responsibility. It's, I think, government, but increasingly it has to be business. And a person I've talked about before is Randall Stevenson at AT AT&T, who has, you know, is a arch capitalist, if I might call it that, believes very much in shareholder value and so forth, but has undertaken one of the most significant reskilling programs I've ever seen. Um, hundreds of thousands of people uh, being uh, given the opportunity to retrain, to be able to deal with the digital world. And and I think that's something that business has to do much more of. If we don't take care or think about the societal impact mm-hmm. of the work that we're doing, we won't have the license to operate. Right. And government can't is just not capable of being able to deal with with some of these issues. I'm not saying that right. we should go into okay, education but, or, you know, well, but can, there's things we can do
0: here. Here's an, I, I mean, I know Don Bart, that it would not, I'd never see you with a Jenny cream ale or a Molson <laughs> golden ale uh, at a bar. But if you're at a kind of bar that serves Jenny cream ale or Molson golden ale, uh, Micah was here helping us with television or a Utica club, fine beverages. Those people go, that's all great talk, but what's the program to jumpstart that? America can't seem to figure that out where, for example, Germany seems to have the right calculus.
4: Yeah, Germany is a great example. You said even not only in terms of the apprenticeship programs and vocational schools, but even what they're doing with their employment centers. Their unemployment centers are not just for when you don't have a job. You go Mm -hmm. there to say, what are some of the skills I'm likely going to have to train for while I do have a job to continue to have a job? That's being proactive, and I think that's because there's a very good, there, there's more cohesion, right? And and you've got business, you've got the unions who are also supportive of. We this don't notion. have
0: those. I mean, we've atomized. Is the I right, believe the right yeah. phrase? The unions haven't we?
4: Yeah, we have. We don't. We just don't have. There's no. There's no voice for that group, um, and it, except through populism.
0: In the last ten years. Corporations have had the labor power, and we haven't seen wage growth. We all know the story. When does that act change? Do you? I mean, I, we had a major CEO, uh, a company folks in the news, who told us two, three, four years ago. One day, he realized the bottom fifteen percent of his pay grid couldn't pay the rent. Yeah, they literally couldn't get to the next month. Is that going to shift? Do you do you people see legitimate wage growth across the middle deciles of America?
4: I, I think it will come, but it's very slow incoming. And I think what's happened is actually the again we've got this increasing polarity. So you've got you know a lot more low-paying jobs and then a few very high-paying jobs as we're working through the system. It's, you know the the right. middle class in a sense is being gutted. It's it's it's. Well, it's shifting between those poles, mainly to the lower side of it.
0: You know, not to get into philosophy, we do that again, folks, under 10 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. <laughs> You're, Canada's on a Fahrenheit system, right?
4: Nope, Celsius. So, no, yeah, Celsius.
0: Volmer, I can't keep, t- make a note of this. I can't keep track of which countries are, se- are centigrade in Fahrenheit. I just know Francine and I don't Use agree yeah, on yeah. temperature. But but the the idea here that we're gonna fix this and we keep waiting and waiting. Is it just about GDP? If we actually develop economic growth, we may get labor power?
4: I think I, I I think what we have to look at is the you know, what you the example you gave and I think Mark Bertolini was one who would say that when he, right. he was at Aetna, who said he was very concerned about the Okay, folks. Wage this compensation. is why we have
0: Don Barton on. He's so damn good he can pick the CEO no, no, out I'm, of the five hundred I talked to and know no, that it was Bertolini no. of Aetna that told me the he story. Told, yeah,
4: and it, but I think it's a it's a great example of again taking responsibility and because and, and he does it for selfish reasons
0: why aren't there more mark Bertolini's wearing the fancy suits and ties of McKinsey
4: I don't I, I well I think what we need is uh, again a this is again about the modernization of capitalism you have right. to. we have to start thinking about the wh- the whole system not just what we're doing individually mm-hmm. and because there's no system out there right now institutions that are helping deal with these right. issues there's a dearth of them
0: Ian Bremmer talks about a Hobbesian 2018, and not to wax philosophical, but let's go there. Hobbes, nature's in power, man doesn't control the system, Leviathan, I'm guessing chapter 18. And then John Locke shows up, and John Locke gives us a Jeffersonian sense of individual. And then we go down the road, and I think of Torsten Veblen, I'm going to say 1905, 1890, which bordered on a more... You Neo-socialism, know, if you will. Where are we in our business philosophy, other than a Trumpism, which supporters and critics are very aware has a roughness to it, a ruth- ruthlessness to it?
4: I, I think, in some ways, we're, we may be going back to the owner capitalism. If you think about Lever Teddy Brothers, Roosevelt, re- even, before? even before that, you know that yeah. where you've got where you you saw you know schools and hospitals and and so forth within the site where mm-hmm. workers were to to take what care Carney of them I'm not, did with Carney, Frick Pittsburgh, right. Right. and it may be that's too paternalistic but there's a modern day version of that which says we better think about uh, you know is there should there be a lifetime learning account that we have mm-hmm. we think about pension pensions people having pensions there right. should be a lifetime learning <laughs> account that we all have pr- pr- we contribute Employers contribute and the government uh, right. makes it and incentives, uh, advises us to do it. Those are new institutions that we need to deal with this world because we're not keeping track. There's that, you know, that uh, uh, E.O. Wilson, right. Who, right, who I love, right. he, you know, the, who Biologist, studied ants, science, right, yeah, and things like right. that. And he had this quote, I just want it says, you know, we have a society with godlike technology, medieval institutions, and Stone Age emotions. I just don't yeah. think it's quite. Ap- apropos right. for what we're dealing with.
0: i got one minute left. Yep. I want to talk about foreign languages and the resumes of the super kids you guys look at at McKinsey. It used to be, I was in all of Canada, they spoke English, they spoke French. Does anybody speak only three languages anymore or is every resume four languages? No, no, no.
4: People, I mean, we have, uh, one thing I would just say about that is I think we've become too box ticking And looking at the universities and the backgrounds, this year we're going to hire five people that do not have university degrees. That's not a very big deal, but it's a big statement to say that we're My mother
0: called it Harvard on the brain. You're getting away from Harvard on the brain?
4: What we're going to do is look for talent, raw talent, and look for ways that we can train them and drive them. Because talent is not just defined by the marks that they get. Is the the MBA
0: program overrated?
4: I'd, I think certain aspects of it are. I think all elements, some elements in education. I wouldn't want to write off the MBA at all, right. I think. But I think we want to look for a more diverse, raw yeah. set of capabilities that we can then help train. It's about grit. It's a, it's the drive, um, the d- desire to want to... Yeah. learn. It, you, in, in a um, world where people don't have chances, you got to go for that. I'm
0: going to go with STEM, as we do, and thank you to New Jersey Institute of Technology for their support, but STEM with the very liberal arts. Tom Barton, thank you so much. He is with McKinsey and Company. Right now, someone we spoke to earlier this morning and deserves a redo is a name you may know. You certainly know if you're in engineering and technology. His name is Vince Surf, but you may really not know who he is and the kind of work he did over many decades. Vin, uh, Vint Surf is with a small company named Google or Alphabet, where he is given a very Silicon Valley name of evangelist, but really out of that is this incredibly original and hard work on TCP IP and really the founding set of individuals who gave us this Internet. Vince Cerf, we're honored to speak to you from our studios today in Washington. Is the Internet of today what you thought it would be from the time of 1994 and dogpile or even the decades before?
5: Well, I have to say that uh, we had high hopes that this technology would uh, unleash uh, a lot of uh, collaborative creativity, and I think we've certainly seen that. Yes. On on the other hand, uh, we've also seen what happens when you lower the barrier to uh, access to information and provision of information to nearly zero for uh, virtually anyone on the planet who has access to the Internet. That's about half of the world's population you actually allow uh, a bunch of things to happen, some of which are not necessarily all positive. Uh, the injection of uh, fake news and you know, bad data and so on, to say nothing of malware and cyber attacks and so forth, uh, all get enabled uh, at the same time all the positive benefits are, uh, are made possible. And so now we have a challenge ahead of us, which is to try to make this a safer environment for everyone.
0: I, I, I look at where we are in the day-to-day Big data phrases a couple years ago, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence. I've seen used and abused for easily 30 or 40 years. I had a family member who was with Sun Microsystems years ago in the beginning of AI. Is AI anywhere closer to reality now or do you cringe when you hear all these phrases?
5: (laughs) Well, thank you for asking it that way. Uh, certainly, artificial general intelligence is not really much closer to today than it was 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, on the other hand, our ability to use machine learning uh, is actually quite impressive. and the, uh, the methods that we use for absorbing large amounts of data and then deriving useful output uh, have become far more sophisticated in the last several years, especially with multilayer neural networks. But at Google, we're very careful to try to use the term machine learning uh, rather than AI, even though um, our CEO has said, you know, this is sort of AI, Um, because we're really not uh, creating intelligence in the sense of being able to build models of the world and reason about them. That's not what this software tends to do. And that's what most people think of when they think of artificial intelligence. But I do want to emphasize how powerful this technology can be as a tool. Uh, people use it sometimes without even thinking about it. When, when we do translation, for example, I get email in various languages, and it's automatically translated into English. And for many right. languages, the translation is pretty good. We're using yeah. multi-layer, multi-layer neural networks to assist us in producing that result. So so there's a huge benefit here, especially the pattern recognition, for example, the analysis of right. medical information. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a positive, uh, you know, I'm very pro-machine learning, but I do worry about misunderstandings. And frankly, more generally, I worry about this, the uh, reliance that we are putting on autonomous software. And I'm using that right. word deliberately. It's not... It's not You know, self-driving cars are certainly an example of autonomous software, but so is the software that runs in your thermostat. And as we rely on the software to just do stuff without our intervention, I worry about the bugs (laughs) that are in the software uh, that either simply make mistakes or maybe make these devices um, vulnerable to various forms of attack. so we're, we're, I'm sorry, I keep going on and on. No, Go no, ahead. it's
0: fine. It's fine. It's just I, in, the, in the precious time that we've got with you, Vince Cerf, I have to ask a question that so many of our listeners are dealing with with their kids. This is not 1957 and Mr. Fagan's uh, IGY. We are growing up in a time of anti-science and anti-mathematics. How do we get the love of science and math back into our kids?
5: Well, I can tell you that the National Science Board, of which I am a member, which oversees the National Science Foundation, has been uh, really uh, deeply uh, concerned about this as well. Uh, It's hard Hmm. to fully understand what's happened here. Uh, Science has rewarded us repeatedly for decades, or, well, centuries and even millennia, um, with uh, new capabilities that uh, have the potential to make our lives better. Uh, somehow or other, uh, we have managed to uh, contort our society around to misunderstand all of this. Uh, and so I think the answer here is is getting kids earlier, uh, early enough, uh, interested in uh, satisfying their curiosity bumps, and to encourage that as opposed to driving right. it out with educational practices that that make science boring or mathematics boring. In fact. It's probably the most exciting subjects in the world. I mean, learning how the universe works has to be just about the most exciting thing I could possibly imagine trying to do. Right.
0: Vint, we've got to leave it there. I hope to extend this conversation with Vint Cerf of Google. Let's talk to someone who knows Microsoft Excel so well. Brad Smith is, of course, the president of Microsoft and truly one of the great, and I rarely use this phrase, Brad, I detest it, but you have earned it so much. Truly a thought leader on technology. Brad, you've been uh, writing about the Geneva Convention, 1864, the basis to find rules of international law for the protection of the victims of armed conflict, We feel like victims of technology. Why do we need a technology Geneva Convention?
6: Ian spells it out very well in his top 10 risks this morning for 2018. I think number two is the risk of accidents, and cyber attacks is one of them. Unfortunately, they're not always accidents. Uh, I think one would be hard-pressed to look at some of the biggest attacks of last year. WannaCry, which was in May, it it affected 150 countries. Uh, The NotPetya attack on Ukraine in in June. Uh, We live in a world where cyber tools, unfortunately, are not just being used to write documents with Microsoft word, uh, but they're being weaponized by major nation states, and they are increasingly uh, intentionally or otherwise being unleashed. And we're going to have to do a number of new things to address this, but among these things are to get some rules in the road in place for countries, just as we had to do for nuclear arms, just as, frankly, we've had to do for every new arms technology since the middle of the 19th century.
1: Well, Mr. Smith, and and maybe Ian, and you come in uh, after this, what is one thing that you would like to see uh, initiated?
6: Well, if there is one thing above all else, it would be to get governments to agree that they will not use cyber weapons to attack civilians, especially in times of peace. Consider this. Since World War II, the governments of the world have agreed that they will protect civilians even in times of war. That's what they put in the Fourth Geneva Convention in 1949. And and yet here we see governments attacking civilians, whether it's hospitals, whether it's our electoral processes, whether it's the electrical grid, and this is happening in peacetime. And this is going to continue, we believe, unless We raise our voice and really push governments to address this in a stronger manner.
1: Uh, I mean, I agree with that completely. Uh, You know, you look at the U.S. government right now. We we recognize, even though Trump said NATO was obsolete, he becomes president. He's like, no, NATO is really important. He's focusing on industry, supporting industry, wants there to be more jobs. And yet none of this works for new technologies. Uh, The United States is not acting multilaterally try to coordinate with our allies around the world to come up with a way to address, assess, and and uh, and deal with, react to uh, cyber attacks. Uh, we're not working to treat um, our most important industries in technology as strategically essential to the United States. I mean, the Chinese government gets this really well, but the United States doesn't, and I think it's going to hurt.
0: I I look at all this, and just in the time that we've got left, I want to apply the top risks of Eurasia Group, and and Ian Bremer, of course, has been so good on this over the years, folks, and Brad Smith, to what you're doing at Microsoft, which is basically an America left behind. Uh, You've got a nodding acquaintance with the Climes of Wisconsin. Microsoft has an innovation project with the Green Bay Packers, to jumpstart innovation where it really, really, really is difficult to jumpstart. Do we need, obviously we need a lot more of that. Is this the year where America finally gets its act together like Titletown in Green Bay, uh, Wisconsin?
6: Well, I think there is something to that. I mean, I think fundamentally, if you look at the election results in 2016 in the United States, or you look at election results in a country like Poland, or you look at what's happening in Turkey or many other places that Ian captures, you see a real divide between urban areas and rural areas. And we have to do a better job of bringing technology and innovation back to rural areas. We have to do that by bringing broadband connectivity to rural areas. There's still 23 million Americans that have no access to broadband because they're in rural counties and to me this is like electricity in the 1930s the problem is not that people had electricity in urban areas it's that they didn't have it in rural areas if we can't bring the country back together in this way i don't see how we bring the country back together uh, in any other way
1: a uh, uh, gentleman can i can i just post, come back to you though about this idea of government hacking and uh, these new laws that you're talking about uh, Hasn't the United States government been doing this almost forever? And I'm talking about not just adversaries, but allies. So, I mean, what makes anybody think this is really going to change? Well,
6: I I, I do think that there is a complexity here to which you allude. What what
1: complexity? The United States has already hacked into the phone messages of Chancellor Angela Merkel, an ally and NATO member.
6: But what the United States has never done, in my view, is it hasn't unleashed cyber weapons on hospitals or on schools. It hasn't sought to steal intellectual property yeah. from private businesses. You know, The, the U.S. has recognized yeah. some rules of the road. But as Ian points out, it's not leading the right. multilateral charge.
0: Brad Smith, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. He's president of Microsoft uh, and, and uh, a good contributor to what Eurasia Group's doing. You're thinking